How are we going? Is that excellent? One button to push, he always gets it wrong. <laughs> My name's Al. If I haven't met you yet, I'm a member of the church here at Vine Church. And uh, Toby, our lead pastor, is on long service leave. I get a phone call a little while ago, and uh, here I am to speak. And the topic I've been given today, hope for the fearful. And I guess sadly, if ever you look at a news app or watch the news on television or whatever, as many people in our world live lives of fear, and rightly so. They're in fear of violence or war or terrorism or sometimes even fear of their own government. Now, of course, the good news is here in Australia, we don't need to be fearful. We live in possibly, you know, in one of the safest, richest, uh, freest cultures in the history of the planet and ironically one of the most fearful and anxious. These last few days uh, of this week, uh, the week just gone, uh, I went back to my hometown to talk to my father about the next stage in where he needs to live and as I was worrying about that, the uh, Sydney Morning Herald sent me this um, summary thing. Um, I subscribe to the Herald day by day to see what's going on. Uh, they said this, as, the, as this year, 2023, began, um, Australians had a lot on their minds coming into 2023. When asked what keeps them up at night, here's what they said. 25% were worried about their financial well-being, 23% were worried about not saving enough money, 21% about their personal physical health, and 20% worried about their own mental health. And my guess is a lot of people worried about more than one of those things. In fact, I did a little research and the latest ABS figures say this, across 2022-23, in a 12-month period, one in six Australians had an anxiety disorder. That means one in six Australians was sufficiently anxious to go and find a medical professional to get some kind of help. And if you dig a little bit deeper, across a lifetime, one in three Australians will have some kind of anxiety disorder. Now, we're in, you know, we, we react to anxiety differently. Some of us are kind of on the less anxious. I've got a, <laughs> I have a daughter who takes great delight in driving her car uh, with the fuel light on. <laughs> because she says with a giggle, when her husband gets in the car, it freaks him out. <laughs> So she'll drive around all day like with the, with the car sniffing, sniffing petrol fumes. Not a worry in the world. There's others of us who are very anxious. And by the way, if you do need medical help to cope with that, sure, go and get that. Of course. There's lots of things to worry about, isn't there? Like, well, COVID is kind of in the rear vision mirror now, but, but it's the gift that keeps on giving. Everyone I meet is worried about climate change. People are either worried the government's not doing enough or they're worried the government's doing too much. But everyone's worried about climate change. But then there's just ordinary things. I mean, I, since I got this topic, I've been listening a little more carefully and I hear people I know just talk about things that really worrying them, about the job interview coming up or moving house and coordinating that or where will they live in six months' time or mortgage stress or health problems for them or someone they love or ageing parents and transitions. 
Did you notice, um, let's have a look at the, uh, the definition. Uh, here's anxiety. Apprehensive uneasiness or nervousness, usually over an impending or anticipated ill. You notice anxiety is always about the future. Now, you might suffer in the present, yes, but anxiety is always about the future. And I suspect we are anxious because we realise how little of life we can really control. I don't just mean you can't control the weather, I mean you can't control any other human being, really, especially the people we care about most. We can't control things about our health or a, a thousand other random events. And of course, there's the great fear that we're not allowed to mention in polite company, and that is, what happens when we die? Now, what's Christmas got to say to an anxious culture, or more particularly to anxious people? Um, Because, you know, what's the point of Christmas? Well, Christmas can seem make-believe, Santa Claus everywhere and elves and whatever else, etc. But if you scrape away the the tinsel and the sugar, and that's all fun and I'm all for it, right? scrape away the tinsel and the sugar, etc., and it's about the birth of a baby, and it happened in the real world. We know where it happened. Bethlehem still exists. In fact, my wife Kathy went, visited there four or five years ago, and we know when it happened. Uh, Jesus was born uh, 5 or 6 B.C., Think, wait a minute, that's before Christ. How come? Did, well, in the sixth century, there was an Eastern European, an Eastern monk called Dionysius, who worked out the um, uh, the relationship of Jesus' birth in relation to the Roman Empire and all the dates. And to quote Maxwell Smart, he missed it by that much. Um, Jesus was actually born five or six BC, and in five or six BC in Judea, what we'd call today Israel, but um, in Judea. The Romans had conquered the Jews about 60 years earlier. The king of Idumea, an adjoining kingdom called uh, Antipater, uh, Antipater, uh, he helped the Romans conquer the Jews. And the deal was that his son, Herod, would be put on the throne to rule as a puppet king over the Jews. And Herod the Great, like so many other tyrants in the world whose middle name is the um, through history. You can think about how many you can list later. Herod the Great was not great. He was a nasty, nasty piece of work. And the Romans wanted taxes and Herod wanted power and, sorry, I'll show It's history. It really happened. It really happened. Speaking of really happened, here's a nativity scene. Okay. Um, looking good. What's, can you pick what's wrong with it? Mary doesn't really look like she just gave birth, but I don't mean that. Sorry, the well done. The wise men shouldn't be there. Why? Well, um, uh, Aileen just read about the shepherds being the first people to see baby Jesus. Yes, Matthew tells us. Well done, Pauline. Um, Matthew tells us the wise men probably didn't arrive until Jesus was two years old. That can't be right. Go and read Matthew's gospel. You'll see. All right, so, all right, now, um, uh, Matthew tells the story from almost a national kind of point of view and from Joseph's viewpoint. Luke, the doctor, 
They've always got a compassionate heart. He tells the story from Mary's point of view um, and, uh, and the shepherds. Now, there's debate about where the shepherds fit into the kind of social hierarchy in ancient Israel. Were they kind of respected or were they outcasts or whatever it is? If you're in the fields at night out in the cold, you're not one of the elites. So let me show you three things that this part of the Bible says to a nervous culture or an anxious culture or perhaps to anxious individuals. Firstly, uh, God keeps his promises. Um, did you notice in verse 11, we're told, um, the angels say to the shepherds, today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The word Messiah uh, is the Hebrew way of saying it. Uh, Christ is the Greek way of saying it. The great king or the anointed one might be the English way of saying it. And God had promised for, well, thousands of years that he'd send his king. So 1800 BC, Abraham's grandson Jacob, as he's dying, promises, uh, prophesies, promises that God would send a great king from the tribe of Judah. 800 BC, uh, the prophet Isaiah, um, that Meg just read for us, Isaiah promises that a great king would come, a descendant of King David. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne, etc. God keeps his promises. Well, secondly, God works in unexpected ways. My guess is that Mary's life took a bit of an unexpected turn after the angel turned up. You know? Uh, teenage girl, not yet married, very little money. Uh, it's easy to kind of romanticise it. I bet it wasn't that romantic. What are we told? Chapter 2, verse 6 of Luke. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Away in a manger and... It's not an ensuite. In fact, it's not sweet at all. It's an animal food trough. And you notice the NIV trans, the New International Version, has gone for no guest room. That word's only used three times in the New Testament. Every time it means a guest room in a home. Um, so what is it? I figure they end up out the back in the shed, either of a relative or someone who um, took pity on them. And what does she do? She wraps him in cloths. The older versions of the Bible talked about she wrapped him and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him, the King James Bible says, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Now, what are swaddling clothes? When our kids were little, Kathy used to wrap the kids up like they were a burrito, okay? Uh, and what's it all about? Well, I looked it up. Swaddling clothes, you, you wrap the baby in cloths, okay, um, uh, Wrapping newborn babies tightly in soft cloths, which quietens, quietens them and calms them. God acts in ways you would not expect. The Son of God arrives and gets wrapped up in cloth. The theologians, will, their, their great word, eventually Jesus' followers worked out, if you like, the word incarnation, meaning to become flesh, that God himself steps into our world. But not only does God have his son wrapped in cloth once, but twice. And when was the second time? About 30 years later, 
Luke tells us this happened. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good, upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. He's wrapped in cloth after he's crucified. So Jesus came to teach us about God, to show us what God is like, but fundamentally to pay the price of forgiveness. The price of the guilt that you and I, in our heart of hearts, know is there in the way that we've treated God and other people. And the theologian's word for that, the atonement, a price paid so forgiveness is possible. But God acts in ways that people don't expect. And of course, the cloths, they turn up again one more time, and that is they're left in the grave or in the tomb as Jesus has risen and the price is paid. Incarnation, atonement, resurrection, all things that people didn't expect. And thirdly, God is patient. You know, God waited centuries to put together the, if you like, the historical cradle for Jesus to be born, born into that part of the world at that time. And you might think, why? Well, I just think the Roman Empire is there. They've conquered the known world. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace was there. Now, it was peace because the Roman sandal was on people's throats, but it was peace It meant that people could travel. It meant things were at least stable. There was a common language, um, Koinone Greek. Why? Because of Alexander the Great. There's another character of the middle name, the, right? Put a lot of pain on people. Alexander the Great, Greek spread everywhere. And then over the centuries, God had spread Jewish people all over the Roman Empire who were ready to hear the message of their Messiah. And so God patiently put it all together And the Christian message spreads. And even at a personal level, I can't help but think about the shepherds. You know, the angels turn up, tell them, go and see the baby wrapped. They do that. They say, wow. And they tell everybody. And then the shepherds have got to wait 30 years before the baby's ready to step up and start to change the world. And I can just imagine Luke, as he went and interviewed everyone, as he says, he goes and finds some old shepherd who remembers, yeah, about 40 years ago this happened. Okay, anyway, I'll just... And even Jesus himself's not in a hurry. Have you ever thought Jesus spent maybe 15, 16 years working as a tradie? Why did he do that? So from 14, 15, he would have worked as a carpenter, we're told. My theory, it's almost certain that Jesus' dad... Uh, or Mary's husband, Joseph, dies between when Jesus is 12 and when Jesus is 30-something. And Jesus worked as a carpenter, patiently, etc., until his siblings, his four or five brothers, as Matthew tells us, are old enough to step up into the business and look after mum. Then he becomes a preacher and begins to change the world. So what do those three things show us about God? God keeps his promises. And you know that matters, doesn't it? It matters. 
Because he promises if we'll trust him, if we'll trust him, he will forgive us, he will change us, and there's the promise of eternal life in a new creation. It matters. God works in unexpected ways, yes. saw um, incarnation, atonement, resurrection, but not just those big ideas in our own lives. I can just about guarantee your life will not work out how you would write the script. But God says if you'll trust him, if you'll trust him, it'll be okay. And thirdly, God is patient. You know, Jesus promised that he'd come back. You think, yeah, well, it's been 2,000 years. Why, you know, where is he? Look, the Bible says, Psalm 90 says, look, for God, 2,000 years is like a weekend. It's not a big deal. So why does he wait? He waits to give people the opportunity to come to him and to find forgiveness. That's why. Because when Jesus returns, I've got to tell you, Jesus warned again and again, heaven and hell are on the line for those who've followed him or those who haven't. And God is patient, but not endlessly so, because patience that never ends is actually indifference. And God is definitely not indifferent about our lives. So Jesus promised he'd come back. It may be our last Christmas. So to a fearful culture, or if I could say anxious individuals, you can't control the future, but you can know the one who does. And I hope in the craziness of uh, Christmas, you get some time to uh, maybe read the words of Jesus, some time to think about him and what he's done for us. Now, Liv and the band are going to uh, give us the opportunity to do that right now.